seated. Well, we continue our study, the book of Ezra. If you have a Bible and you'd like to turn with me, we come to Ezra chapter 9. Um, picking up, as we'll see, about four and a half months after the arrival of Ezra described in the previous chapter. From Ezra chapter 9. When these things were done, the leaders came to me saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves as sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and the rulers has been foremost in this trespass. So when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard and sat down astonished. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive. And I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. At the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting, and having torn my garment and my robe, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, O oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has grown up to the heavens since the days of our fathers. To this day, we have been very guilty. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands and to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation, as it is that this day. And now, for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. For we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but he extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. And now, O Lord our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded your servants by the prophets, saying, The land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land, with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, the, with the abominations which they have filled it from one end to another with their iniquity, excuse me, with their impurity. Now, therefore, do not give your daughters as wives for their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve, 
and have given us such a deliverance as this, should we again break your commands and join in marriage with the people committing these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you had consumed us so that there would be no remnant or survivor? O Lord, God of Israel, you are righteous, for we are left as a remnant as it is this day. Here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of this. Amen. Let's pray once more together. Our Father in heaven, with uh, what words of, uh, of deep pathos the uh, godly Ezra uh, prayed to you on behalf of his people and the, the state of the uh, nation of God, such as it was at that time, we likewise, with heavy hearts, would uh, intercede before you and pray that you would bless us in our day and each according to his need. We long to learn the lessons of these things of old, which are written for our instruction. We pray that we too would uh, see the goodness and the, the wisdom in your holy commands. We pray that this institution of marriage, which you have made from the foundation of the world, to celebrate and to signify to us the everlasting joy of Christ, our bridegroom, and of the, of the nobility of his bride who has been so loved, that this would be treasured among us all, and especially in the generations to come, which we know and admit are uh, subject to uh, influence and wavering from generation to generation, prone to wander, prone to forget the God who has so blessed and delivered us. We pray that they, in the generations to come, would not forget the mighty things that you have done, even from of old, and that you would continue to bless your people, that in your church, by Christ Jesus, you would have glory from generation to generation, for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, the Bible has some of the most exhilarating and touching and beautiful words about marriage, teaching us that God has appointed marriage, as I prayed earlier, to provide us some of the greatest joys and pleasures in human life under God that, that it affords. Uh, when the Lord wanted some institution among men to be able to represent the, the love and the communion and the glory of Christ and his church. It was marriage that received such a blessing. And here in marriage, we find a richness of love that is exclusive, loyal, faithful, passionate, a part of a total union of a man and a woman. Solomon writes to men in Ecclesiastes, live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your life. And to his own son in Proverbs, he says, Rejoice with the wife of your youth and always be enraptured by her love. Revelation points to the goal of all human history. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. Even though we don't always experience it this way, perhaps at a wedding, uh, when the Bible reaches to explain great joy and celebration and gladness, it, it reaches to the metaphor of marriage again and again. Indeed, a whole book of the Bible is dedicated to this subject, the Song of Solomon celebrating this total union of heart and spirit and body 
and many wonderful passages of the Bible reinforce it. So it is ours every day in marriage to cultivate, to deepen, to preserve and practice and to savor this love and joy, which is, again, only so much of an approximation of what we will supremely enjoy forever with our Lord. Well, like all of God's commands, there is in them a rich reward. And likewise, in the command only to marry in the Lord, this is not given to restrict us, but to produce something wonderful and beautiful in our lives. In the second century, Tertullian wrote, quote, what kind of yoke is it that two believers who partake of one hope, one desire, one discipline in the same service enjoy? Both are brethren, both fellow servants. No difference of spirit or of flesh. Indeed, they are truly two in one flesh. For where the flesh is one, one is the spirit too. Mutually teaching, mutually exhorting, mutually sustaining. Equally, they are found in the church of God. Equally, at the banquet of God. Equally, in straits, in persecutions, in refreshments. Neither hides anything from the other, neither shuns the other, neither is troublesome to the other. The sick are visited, the indigent relieved. Such things, when Christ sees and hears, he rejoices. To these he sends his own peace, so that where two are, there he is also. And where he is, the evil one is not. Uh, beautiful words of Tertullian. So, clearly, marriage is the most important relationship that we have in this life. Clearly, it is to give us the greatest joy under God of anything that God has made. It is the place that Christians work out their salvation, most of all, to live and grow as disciples of Christ and to practice and grow in our faith. And it's because of this beautiful ideal of marriage and many related reasons that the Bible says that we, are, we must marry only in the Lord, 1 Corinthians 7. As always, the brightness of that positive command is also set against a very dark background of disobedience to it. And it's the dark background that brings us today to Ezra chapter 9. Now, to catch you up, the previous chapter, chapter 8, began with the return of the next wave of exiles under the leadership of Ezra. A whole generation has now passed from the beginning of the book. They arrived in Jerusalem. They enjoyed great celebration at the feast, and they worshiped together. And this chapter uh, begins with some rather plain-sounding words uh, in my New King James, when these things were done. Perhaps uh, you have uh, something similar. But when you compare chapter 10, verse 9, you'll see that actually about four and a half months have passed since Ezra returned to Jerusalem and began that program we read about of biblical instruction. This is now December of the year 458 B.C. We are back in Jerusalem, and something extraordinary and troubling and unexpected begins in this chapter. The beginning of a great revival among the people of God. But it begins, as many revivals do, with powerful conviction. As I say, this is the prelude to a great awakening among the people of God. Ezra 
we read before, when we first met him in chapter 7, had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach its statutes and ordinances in Israel. He's been teaching in Israel now for several months. But at this point in chapter 9, we find that the people come to him and acknowledge that all was not as it ought to be. And if they had ever doubted the nature or importance of these commandments, now the word of God being made fresh to them again brings the people to him in confession. And I'd like to consider with you this evening, uh, first, the problem, and second, the reaction, handle a number of uh, objections, and then consider the fulfillment of these things in Christ. First, the problem. The problem. The, the problem is very plain in the first two verses. It's no, no wonder, the whole chapter, what we're talking about. Verse 2 They've taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of these lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. In other words, uh, like priests, like people, from the top down, the people of God have been intermarrying with the people of the various Canaanite nations. This list of people from verse 1, in large part, is quoted directly from the law of Moses, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, and so forth. God had given a command through Moses, quoted here. Actually, he quoted, he, he, he gave it through Moses several times in different ways to explain his will to his people and give the reasons for it. God's word plainly says that sin not only enslaves and eventually destroys the sinner, It exacts a heavy toll on others. This sin in particular, here it is in Deuteronomy. Nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you, and he will destroy you suddenly. Now, you know, that's just what happened. That is what happened to them. Their cities had been destroyed. This temple raised to the ground. The nation carried away as slaves. Israel had suffered greatly as a result, as we read, for instance, in verse 7, how since the days of our fathers to this day, we've been very guilty, and for our iniquities, we, our kings, our priests, have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation as it is this day. Four times in this passage, he refers to God's people as an escaped remnant, showing that this formerly vast and mighty nation had been utterly desolated so that only the remnant remains. Ezra repeatedly uses words like bondage, slavery, and ruins to describe what befell them. Ezra learns that now, just one generation back in the land, they've headed right down that same road again. Ezra knows and acknowledges in verse 14 that if they don't repent of this, well, God would be justified in destroying them so that no remnant this time would survive or escape. And this is all the more discouraging because, as Ezra points out, since 
they had come back from the exile. They, they had witnessed so many great mercies from the Lord, so recently given. The Lord had given them generous favor with the kings of Persia from generation to generation, returned them to the land, sent them with very, very generous gifts. He had overcome, the Lord had overcome their enemies and preserved their lives in difficult straits. And in these and many other ways, they had known the good favor of God upon them. Yet despite all that is the point, they had flouted this commandment of God from the top down, like priests, like people. This is the problem, point one. It's a problem, I think, that's very contemporary, one that we are also uh, very familiar with in our day, because I probably, like you, have seen Christian young people fall in love with those who do not love the Lord, and consequently either fall away from their faith or have their devotion to the Lord greatly affected. And of course, as the years go on, most of all, it's the children that suffer such a thing. Christian young people are often persuaded, or maybe I should say tempted, to enter mixed marriages by thinking, well, he's so near the faith. Well, she's open to come to church, but the end result is almost always that the Christian is brought down and the unbeliever is hardly ever brought up. It's the foolishness of youth alone which thinks that, oh, far down the road, this won't be a great grief or an obstacle to life and love, to happiness and fruitfulness. It is. These, these things are always greatly affected if it does not destroy the marriage altogether. I came across an article a while back about um, Jane Hawking. It was actually by Jane Hawking. You might know the uh, devout Christian wife of Stephen Hawking, the late Stephen Hawking, celebrated astrophysicist of Cambridge University, also an atheist, though you might not know from some of his early books especially because of the respect he had in some ways for his wife. Stephen Hawking was also greatly affected by Lou Gehrig's disease, which was diagnosed before they got married. In other words, Jane knew perfectly well what it would mean if she married him. And uh, I think there's a movie about that out a couple years ago. I haven't seen it myself, but simply that... Um, for many years, Jane served as a most devoted wife to a most dependent and disabled husband. And at last, Hawking fell in love with his nurse and divorced his wife. And when they divorced, they both acknowledged the misery that this fundamental difference had brought in souring their marriage. Such differences don't always end marriage, of course, but they do always sour them and become the cause of many bitter tears. Well, when the Bible teaches us that we must marry in the Lord, it's not a mere formality, as if what it's saying is you need to check and make sure that that person has a certificate of membership somewhere before you agree to wed. No, the Bible is talking about fundamental commitments that ought plainly and unmistakably to be obvious to everyone in your life circle, not just you. The Lord didn't say to marry someone who claims to be a Christian. He says to marry in the Lord. That is, someone who shares and practices and lives out devotion to Christ as Lord. Marry in the Lord. Uh, there is to be a coming together, if you like, on, on three different levels, as Dr. Kramendam had explained uh, some time ago to some of you here, uh, way back in those college days, right, that 
that when, when there's a union of a man and his wife, well, there's certainly a coming together physically, spoken of from the very first chapter of the Bible, uh, and uh, that physical attraction is that which uh, probably um, is foremost in many people's minds, but of course it is also coming together in the humanity or the, the social nature. We, we read in Malachi that um, God has appointed uh, a man's wife to be his companion by covenant and vice versa, of course. A companion by covenant, and so there is this coming together of uh, a friend and a loved one. Um, my sister, my spouse, as the Song of Solomon says, and most fundamentally and most importantly for today, there is the coming together spiritually of a man and a woman, and uh, this, is, this is the rub. In fact, I knew a lot of two out of, out of threes before I met my wife, and when I finally met her, I knew right away this was the woman for me because in so many, in so many ways, I realized that there was going to be a, a wonderful coming together in those three levels. This is the union that God intended. Uh, and the practice of the Christian life and the growth in grace and the maturing of holiness is destined to be a family affair. Well, bad company ruins good morals. And so, good company is a spur to all that is holy. If such a marriage is ours, it will be a great strength to the family and others. Without it, a great grief to ourselves and others with inevitable destructive consequences. So, I just point out to you, point one, this problem is a very contemporary problem and one that faces especially those of you who have yet to say, I do. So, understand the problem. Perhaps it's no surprise to you. What might be surprising to you in this chapter is point two, the reaction. The reaction. Uh, Ezra, you notice, is absolutely appalled by what he learns here. He says, I, I plucked out some of the hair of my head and my beard and sat down astonished. I, I don't do that when I get upset because I, I have so little. Uh, it's so valuable to me at this point in my life. But uh, Ezra threw caution to the wind. What he had, he started plucking out. He tore his robe. He fasted. Verse 4, I sat astonished to the evening sacrifice. And uh, we find that soon there's a large assembly of people who are with him weeping bitterly as well. Well, all right, is this, as the British say, a bit over the top? Uh, is this really such a great and grievous sin? Back in the 19th century, there was a, an Englishman and a lay evangelist by the name of Brownlow North. Not as well remembered today, but he was very celebrated at the time. Although he was an Englishman, he labored mostly in Scottish churches. Churches which, by the way, for the most part at that time, had low regard for lay evangelists. In fact, Scottish Presbyterians didn't have much regard for Englishmen in general either. But uh, nevertheless, Brownlow North was a shining exception. He was warmly, very warmly loved and regarded, and the pulpits of the nation were wide open to him. For many years, he was a major figure in various revivals in Ireland and Scotland. And during that time, he published a sermon that uh, still in print today, one that's called Ungodly Marriages. And in that sermon, he makes this remarkable statement, one that I've had to think about for some time, and I want to have you think about it as well. In that sermon, he writes, 
in reading my Bible, I find no sin recorded if we accept the sin of our first parents, which has brought greater curse upon the earth or which is more positively forbidden both in the Old and New Testament than the sin of marrying outside the faith. I read that and I said, really? I did not expect him to say that. No sin, except those of our first parents, that has, so brought, that has brought a greater curse on the earth. I, I was taken aback. I asked, is that true? I still don't know, but I will put the evidence before you. What is he talking about? Well, uh, Genesis 6, we read about the early corruption of the human race that resulted in the near total demise of the godly line of Seth, so that in a few generations on, the godly were virtually no more. Some debate, by the way, on the identity of sons of God I won't get into, but clearly I think in the chapter, spiritually mixed marriages soon brought the righteous line in the earth to an end between the days of Seth and Noah, and of course, destroyed the world of that day. Now you say, well, it was the world filled with violence and so forth. Yes, but what is it that extinguished the light of the world of that day? It was the sin. Well, as I've already mentioned, there were several references in the law of God in which the Lord warned the people not to intermarry with the people of the land, lest, likewise, they turn your hearts away from the Lord and bring you to total ruin, which as I mentioned, is exactly what happened and led to the destruction of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom in their time. One of the most formidable enemies of God's people that they had to face even from the time of the exodus out of Egypt was this temptation. Uh, Balaam counseled Balak, the king of Moab, against Israel. God prevented Balaam from cursing Israel, so that failed. But then Balaam had his revenge, we read, through an insidious plan, Numbers 25, corrupting the people whom he could not curse through the seduction of the Moabite women. That succeeded where his cursing had failed. And as you remember, tens of thousands died in the resulting plague. Well, that was the case when they were making their way to the land. And what happened as soon as they got into that land? Judges 3, we read, The children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. And they took their daughters to be their wives. And they gave their daughters to be their sons. And they served their gods. Well, with that introduction, again and again, we read that... God gave the people various afflictions until they cried out, and then God sent them mighty deliverers. But what brought down even the mightiest deliverer was the same thing, the blandishments and seductions of ungodly women in this case. So it was in the time of the judges that this darkness prevailed. And you might ask, what was it that brought down the kings of Israel and then the whole nation Time and time again, will we witness the sad tale, for instance, of Solomon, a wise man with a heart devoted to the Lord who was undone at the end 
by the pagan wives that he married. We read in 1 Kings 11, For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord. This man whom God had appeared to, the wisest man of old, was undone by other women, unbelieving, ungodly, and his heart was turned away. Uh, Time fails to tell of the wicked Jezebel, foreign idolater, establishing Baal worship during the reign of her weak husband Ahab and Athaliah in the south, and all that that meant for the almost, almost total destruction of the godly line. They thought that the messianic line was gone uh, under those days of Athaliah. Or we think of Jehoshaphat, an otherwise godly king, nearly ruined by joining his son in marriage to the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. As the kings went, so the people, until they became just like the people whom the God had cast out of the land, and the Lord finally cast them out too. And then we find at last a remnant returns. And what is it? What is the sin that, once again, threatens to undo the people? And we read actually in the next book, Nehemiah, another generation on. What is it that What is it that dogs the people still in the days of Nehemiah? What is it that Malachi, the final prophet of old, warns warns the people about? Malachi 2.15, we'll read next week. God complains about people mixing their marriages, but did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring, and you have turned away. Time and time again, this is what has destroyed the godly generation in Israel and elsewhere, if not in one generation, then in two. The Lord has desired a holy seed, Psalm 127, children to be as arrows in the hands of warriors shot through time and space to greatly extend the warfare and the cause of God. He desires His children to call upon Him all the days of their lives and to be raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord Jesus. But this does not happen in mixed marriages as it ought. Time and time again, the chief damage we find comes in the generation to follow. The children suffer most of all. One man wrote, it's partly because this sin does not provoke our own wrath that we don't believe that it provokes the wrath of God. But it does. So maybe you think marrying a believer is something that's very unwise. Well, in God's evaluation, listen to his final word before Christ through Malachi. Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has committed in, been committed in Israel, in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's institution, which he loves. He's married the daughter of a foreign god. So you might think a mixed marriage is unwise. God calls it an abomination, a great evil that has time and time again destroyed the godly from the earth. I could say more, but I hope that this explains point two, Ezra's appalled reaction. Now, I want to handle a few objections or perhaps rationalizations we might be tempted to make. It's very easy to rationalize. You think, well, you know, if I marry that unbelieving person, I'll, I'll still be able to love the Lord, and he or she won't draw my heart away. Well, the Bible is clear on this, that if you're to marry in the Lord, and this is to be the most important decision about the most important relationship in your life, that if you blow it here, well, you've already 
drawn your heart away from your God to the point that you are contemplating sinning in the most important decision for the most important relationship and the most important matter of your life under God, why would you think that the temptations would then stop when you are joined to this person 24-7? Would such dangers not only increase, not uh, only increase? Uh, I remember re- reading in a history of the Civil War some cases where two brothers found themselves on opposite sides of that great conflict, and in every case, you understand, they were terrified lest they should perhaps run into each other on opposite sides of the battlefield and be forced with a terrible choice. Similarly, a Christian married to a non-Christian daily lives in fear that the loyalties must at last clash headlong. Sooner or later, there is going to be a miserable conflict. Well, we also consider the miserable result In the intimacy of that most profound and consequential relationship, one person is going to heaven and another person is going to hell. One person is loving God and ordering his or her life accordingly. The other person is not. Scripture says one will care for nothing so much as that uh, their children should come to love and serve the Lord, the other by word and example, undermining that goal at every point. Sometimes it can't be helped. One spouse becomes a Christian after marriage, or one leaves the faith after marriage. We, we know of such situations, and God certainly can give grace, but it is never a situation that we should have by our own choice. I, I know how easy it is to be drawn into such relationships. Often we are drawn to care from such, for such people from Christian affection and to discount the dangers feeling that the Lord is with us and therefore all things are for good and these things will work out in the end. But no one can say that God has not spoken very clearly and sternly on this matter, spoken in his law and given us many powerful illustrations in his word to make sure we understand the burden of his commandments. And then, of course, in the gospel of Jesus Christ revealed the purpose of all this, a purpose which will be completely undone in spiritually mixed marriages, which tend to kill faith, if not in the first generation, then in the second, and bring a godly seed to nothing. Now, someone will be thinking, yes, but I know of cases where believers married unbelievers and everything did turn out fine. Uh, The unbeliever came to faith in Christ, and today it's a very fine Christian family. Yes, I know of that too, and God has been wonderfully gracious many times but that should not encourage us to sin that grace may abound. We see plenty of counterexamples in the Bible. In fact, I can't think of a single positive example of a mixed marriage in the Bible. So strong is its uh, polemic. On the other hand, the Bible repeatedly gives this warning. If you marry a child of the devil, you're going to have trouble with your father-in-law. The whole Bible repeatedly gives such witness. Well, what about missionary dating, you say? It doesn't say anything about dating. Well, as a Christian, you must make an upfront surrender of your life to God, trusting that He not only loves you, but He knows what is best for you. And if you don't want to go to an altar with the unbeliever, then simply don't accept the first date. The godly father warns his son in Proverbs, remove your way far from the immoral woman. Don't go near her, the door of her house. Or as Garrison Keillor put it, uh, if you don't want to go to Minneapolis, don't get on the train. So uh, the best way to avoid this temptation is to flee 
youthful lust. Because of the deceitfulness of sin, it's very easy, the more your heart is engaged, to tell yourself um, no harm can come, things will work out. Uh, Friends, we have to learn a critical lesson from every generation practically of God's people. It's much easier to avoid this sin and temptation than it is to resist it when you're in it. Thomas Fuller wrote, If a giant knocks while the door is shut, he can still be kept out. But once the door is open, if he gets in but a limb of himself, there is no course left to keep out the remaining bulk. So the scripture says repeatedly, flee youthful lust. Well, friends, I've laid out for you the problem and the reason for this appalling response of Ezra. I've tried to handle a few perhaps common justifications or um, objections that people might make to state the case positively. As we began by saying, uh, all of this is really not so much about a very few years of a wonderful time, even raising godly seed, although the Bible has much to say about these things. That It actually then tells us that, that, that all of these things and the, the wonder and glory of a, of a good marriage Uh, is but a very poor and temporary copy of the eternal glory that is yet to be revealed in us. That the Lord Jesus Christ has loved his bride, given himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such blemish, but that she should be holy. And I say again, we turn to the last page of the Bible, and there we see the glorious fulfillment of what stretches on for the infinite ages of our lives together, the full fulfillment of the promise of the gospel. Christ has saved us and forgiven us and redeemed us, not merely that we should be in heaven with him, but that we should forever know his love as his bride. And so it is, we come to the scriptures and we... Remember that these things have a much greater significance as Christians than we could possibly explain to someone who doesn't believe. That these things are at the very root and heart of why the world is, of what he has done. Again, quoting the Shepherd of Hermas, that kind of strange second century writing, the world exists for the church. It is producing a bride that has uh, been loved and known from all eternity and will forever enjoy the faithful devotion of Christ, her bridegroom. So in conclusion, to state this positively, our choice of a a spouse should, as much as it depends upon us, look forward and enjoy the glories that will come. Um, Will this man or woman not merely be a good companion, a good mother or father to your children, a, a good provider, a faithful worker, and a true Christian partner in the life of faith, but one whose union in mind and heart and body and soul would be something that begins to approach the magnificence of the glory yet to be revealed in us. When we read in Paul's letter that we're to marry only in the Lord, we realize that it is that we might have a marriage as it ought to be. This is God's only commandment regarding your marriage, ultimately. 
And surely, therefore, it ought to be your first and most important consideration. In choosing a mate, I commit to you once, once uh, I commend to you once more the, the reading of these many passages I've referred to. If you are struggling, if you are wondering, if you are on the fence, this is a great matter of grief and a profound matter of joy. Choose life. Let's pray together. Our eternal God and creator, we are thankful for the ways in which you have proclaimed your gospel, even from the very creation of man, making the, the male and the female after your own image, bringing them together, uh, blessing them, giving them fruitfulness, and calling them to multiply, and so to fill the earth with the, your glory. You uh, sent your Son to be our bridegroom. You gave him, even at the very beginning, as he met with his, with his disciples, to, to, to be in Cana and to be gladdened at a wedding and by his presence, so to sanctify marriage. So we pray that he would continue to bless and sanctify the marriages that are here with us now. We confess that in so many ways we fall very, very far short of your glory, of the glory yet to be revealed. We pray that you would look with favor upon these husbands and these wives and grant that rejoicing in all of your gifts, that they might grow to celebrate together more and more Christ and the marriage supper of the Lamb, uh, a joy which has no end and a devotion that will forever enrapture our hearts. We pray that you would forgive us for the ways in which we have preached to the world a poor sermon of the love of Christ and his church, and pray that you would give us grace more and more to preach the truth to ourselves and to enjoy the power.